I'd ask that you would take God's Word into your hand and open to Matthew uh, chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. As you're turning there, as uh, Al shared, this was uh, uh, a wonderful week of opportunities for us as a church, uh, as Al has already prayed for those two families that lost their uh, two uh, senior high boys in a, a tragic car accident. We received uh, a call because of one of our teenagers who uh, thought it would be good to open up the church for uh, prayer and some words of encouragement uh, for her fellow students and uh, shared that with the administrators. Administrators contacted Mario from Caneland High School and uh, they said, would you be willing to open up your church uh, tonight uh, for a, a prayer service and for students to gather? And Mario said, of course, we would be happy to. And uh, uh, Thursday night, we had a couple hundred uh, senior high Caneland students, uh, some parents, faculty members as well, uh, here uh, for a couple hours uh, where the gospel was presented, where words of hope and uh, the foundation of Jesus Christ was shared. And I can't tell you uh, how awesome it was uh, to be a part of seeing teenagers come up asking you to share more about the gospel. And uh, so I would ask that you would pray for the entire Caneland School, that you would pray for the families that have lost uh, their children. I know most of you don't know them, but they are uh, members of the Sugar Grove community, and there would be no greater thing in this world than them to receive a card of sympathy saying, oh, we're praying for you. If there's anything that we can do, we'd be happy to. And uh, I just want to encourage you to do that. Uh, I don't know where uh, the families are at spiritually. I'm not sure if they attend church or not, but we can be a, a wonderful light uh, to those two families. So uh, be in prayer for them and the impact uh, that those deaths have on the school uh, in the days and weeks to come. Well, we continue in our series uh, where we are looking at my Christmas story. And the whole premise of this uh, month of sermons is to look at how we celebrate Christmas, how we define Christmas, and how we allow it to infiltrate our own lives. Sadly, in our world today, we find ourselves uh, pursuing our own Christmas story absent of having Christ involved in any of it. Even as Christians, we find ourselves falling prey to all the hoopla around uh, the issues of Santa and the reindeer and uh, the gifts and the Christmas tree and even the festive spirit that comes during this time of the season. And last week I told you that if we truly want to understand what Christmas uh, is to mean to us as people in this world, then we must get beyond our Christmas story and find ourselves in that epic story that took place a couple thousand years ago. If we want to understand the true meaning of Christmas, then we must go back not to Santa and the reindeer, but to a manger scene in a city of David called Bethlehem where shepherds came after being told that a baby was born and that this baby would be the savior of the world. And so our job as believers is not only to take that and apply those truths of that epic story into our own lives, but to share that story, the story that was shared even as uh, four ladies entered into uh, the waters of baptism, to share their story of how Christ this child that we uh, watched uh, and through the scriptures watched before our eyes become a man perfect without sin so that he may die on the cross so that we who are sinful 
might find eternal life. That is what we are to share. And so we want to look at, continue to look at this story by looking at what Matthew tells us about the birth of Jesus Christ. So I would ask that you would stand as we read uh, from Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 25. The heading in my Bible says, The birth of Jesus Christ, and this is what it says. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be uh, married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph... Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, as was the... uh, The same last week, many of us know this story. Many of us could recite it back to you with all the details uh, that uh, fill this story up. And yet, Lord, we come to this famous text again where you encounter the human father of your son. And Lord, I pray that we would not casually think of this as yet again another Christmas sermon, but a message that is for us today. Father, that we would see in the heart of Joseph uh, truths that we can apply, that we would see your grace and your mercy displayed to this man and how he then lived in obedience to the call that you had in his life. Father, we need to be a people who are obedient. We find ourselves so many times running away from your truths, running away from your commands, like little children who want our own way. But Lord, let this be a reminder as we've studied the subject of Mary and Gabriel's announcement to her last week and today as we look at Joseph and the announcement he receives in a dream that Lord, we too would be ready at any time and at any place to drop all that we have and to do as you've commanded. Lord, it is there that we find blessing. It is there where we find contentment and joy in life. So that is our desire. Let it uh, uh, permeate not only into our hearts and minds, but into our actions as we leave this place and as we spend time with others who may not know you. So, Father, I pray that everything that is said and done uh, in the remainder of the service will bring glory and honor to your holy and precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. When we look at characters within the Bible, there are usually two different responses that you can have. The first response you can have, if you look at any uh, biblical character, is that you can look at them and you can stand in awe of who they are. 
You can look at whether they're from the Old Testament or the New Testament. You can look at any character and you can say, wow, they are so awesome. They are so amazing. The things that they did for the Lord, I could never do. The things that they were able to say yes amidst times of great trial and circumstances. They were able to remain steadfast amidst all kinds of tribulation and struggle. And we many times begin to elevate these characters uh, to positions of great uh, heights. We talked about that last week. Uh, when we talked about uh, where uh, the Catholic Church uh, places so much focus and so much praise on the person of Mary, the mother of Jesus, who was, in fact, a devout, devout woman. But we begin to elevate this woman from being something uh, of a humble servant, a maidservant, she says, to the Lord, to being something greater, almost uh, above uh, all of us as human beings. And so that's our first thing we do. We do that with Paul. We do that with uh, the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who stood before a king and said, I will not bow down to your idol. We do that with Moses and Abraham, who, who was ready to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah to trust what God had said. And we say, wow, there's no way I could do that. They're different than me. I don't have that kind of faith. But there's a second response. The second response is we look at them, and this happens a lot when you look at the disciples, when you look at Jesus talking with the disciples, especially Peter, and, and what we do is say, man, what a bunch of boneheads. They don't get it. If I was there, I would have gotten it. If Jesus walked and did all those miracles, I would have believed. I would have done exactly what Jesus did. Boy, and they missed it. They, they really were dense. They, 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 they didn't uh, listen. They weren't, they weren't understanding. What was their problem? Had I been a part of all that, I would have shown faithfulness. I would have shown that I was obedient. And they, they, they blew it. They missed it. That's usually the case. One of two responses when we look at biblical characters. I think both of those responses are seen in the mother and father of Jesus. As I said with Mary, we begin to look at her and begin to elevate her to these unbelievable heights. But then when we look at Joseph, not much is said about Joseph. In fact, I looked long and hard to find out if Joseph ever says anything. I think he may even be mute, to be quite honest with you, because there's nowhere in Scripture that we see Joseph articulating anything. He's the classic male figure. Mary's out singing and praising the Lord and talking about her. Her soul magnifies the Lord and her soul rejoices in God, her Savior. She's all emotional. And then there's Joseph, silent. Doesn't say anything. And so what do we do with Joseph? We say, ah, you know, Joseph was, you know, he was a necessary evil. Jesus, the baby, needed someone to raise him. Uh, Mary was going to be busy uh, nurturing the child and taking care of the child. So someone had to work. Someone had to bring home, uh, I can't say the bacon, they were Jewish. Um, had to bring home something. And we say, Joseph wasn't that big of a deal. I could have played the part of Joseph. Don't have to say anything. That would have been difficult for me at times. Just work. Take care of your wife. Take care of this new baby. It's pretty easy. His part was easy. You know, there was a show that came out a couple years ago that I think hits on these truths uh, quite, uh, quite clearly. 
I don't know what channel it was on. I can't remember if it was ESPN or one of the other cable networks, but I loved the thought of this show. If you've ever watched sports with uh, any uh, sport fan, uh, you're going to find one of two people, just as you do with the biblical characters. You'll find one who stands in awe of what they're watching on TV, and and they, they think, wow, these athletes who do these incredible things. I could never do that. I don't have the talent. I don't have the physique. I don't have the wherewithal to act like that and to perform at such high a level with circumstances and with so many people uh, pressing in on me. And then there's the other fan, the other fan who will rail the athlete while he's watching him on TV. And you'll hear it. You watch a Bears game with someone and they'll yell and scream that Rex Grossman or or Kyle Orton throws an incomplete pass and that guy stands up and he says, I could do that. I could, and this guy can't throw a ball if his life depended on it, but he's up there and I could, man, if I got paid a million dollars, you better believe I would get out there and play hard and be able to do that. Well, someone got smart enough and said, you know what, we're gonna, we're gonna make a game show out of it. And it was called The Joes versus The Pros. And what they did is they took a whole bunch of sports fans and they said, you really want to see? You really want to play against these athletes? We're going to let you do it. And so they would interview the Joes ahead of time and you would find those two uh, extremes. One who was just happy to be there. Wow, I'm going to get some autographs and I'm excited. I'm a loser. They're the winners. This is great. It's just going to be awesome. I'll tell my grandkids about it. The other one said, I'm coming to get them. And it was funny because you would see the guys that were coming to play and they, they're ripped with muscles and then the only muscle, uh, they had six packs and then the other guy had a mini keg going on, if you know what I mean. And so they would be involved in these sports. But here was the caveat. The athlete would not be in a sport that was his profession. So if he was a basketball player, he had to do football things. If he was a football player, he had to do baseball. And there were all these different things that they would compete against each other. I can assure you that most of the time the Joes lost badly. The athletes were by far better than them in every way. But every once in a while, there would be this guy who wouldn't look anything uh, that he would be any good and he would compete and he would do well. And in fact, he would beat many of the pro athletes time and time again. When we look at the Christmas story, we can go to those two extremes. But I would hope that you would be somewhere in the middle, that you would look at them and say, yes, these are average people. There's nothing great about the Christmas characters. But they did great things because they trusted God. They didn't have some special phone number to God that made them uh, superhuman when it came to their faith. They heard from God and they obeyed God. When we look at Joseph from Matthew's scripture that he shares with us, there's nothing great about Joseph. In fact, this, um, this, a man by the name of Manfred Kofer said this, there is one person who normally receives little to no recognition in the Christmas story, and his name is Joseph. In many ways, Joseph was just an average Joe. While Matthew talks about his genealogy, which has got some great people in the first chapter of Matthew that are a part of the genealogy of Jesus, 
it would seem that from other aspects of life, Joseph was a simple man. Let me share with you some things about it. Number one, there's no history, whether secular or from a Christian standpoint, that mention his upbringing at all. There's nothing. There's no books written about him. Second, uh, we know nothing about how he grew up or, or anything uh, that remotely resulted in any kind of newsworthy event. He had a common job as a carpenter. He lived in a small countryside village in the area of Galilee uh, named Nazareth. And he was a regular guy. The scriptures give this idea that he was a regular guy, carpenters, they worked hard, but we learned some information, and that is this young man, Joseph. We have no idea how old he was, but probably anywhere from 16 to 22 was usually the time uh, when a man in uh, Hebrew tradition would get married. And so between 16 and 22, worked hard. And what was he working hard for? He was planning to get married. We even know later on that uh, he was faithful in paying his taxes. Just a normal guy. Just a normal guy who found his uh, upbringing in uh, the city of David where he would have to go when the census comes. And yet, he's pretty spectacular as well. He has an angel come and visit him in a dream. He's going to be the father of the Savior of the world. He's going to be a part of a wonderful story. And that's true for us as believers as well. You may not be all that famous. You may be just the average person. And I'll tell you, being average isn't all that bad. If you think back to the presidential race, you know, the bad thing was is when you owned eight houses and you had big money, you just wanted to be uh, Joe the plumber. Remember? Everybody wanted to be Joe the plumber. I got it kind of funny. Joe the plumber made a lot more money than I've ever made. It was, uh, he wasn't very average at all when it came to that. But, uh, but that average seems to be good these days. I used to strive for average in, in school, and that was always a goal of mine. But average isn't bad. But God doesn't want you to be average. God didn't make you to be average. God doesn't view you as average because if God viewed you as average, you would not be worth paying the high price that he did to buy you like the scripture says. Because God wants to do something extraordinary through you. And that's what we see in the life of Joseph. But how do we get there? How do we go from being average to being something of greatness in God's eyes? It's through one word. It's the word obedience. Mary and Joseph were nothing if it isn't for God's grace and their obedience. The patriarchs of the faith in the Old Testament were nothing great if it were not for the grace of God and their obedience. The great men and women of the faith who have gone before us were nothing great if it were not for the grace of God and their obedience. That's the difference between you being average in your Christian faith and you being extraordinary. Well, how do we get there? Joseph teaches us three things about obedience this morning. The first thing that we see is that if we want to be great in the eyes of God, then obedience must be a part of our lives, and that means we must obey. We must obey in spite of our current dilemmas. We must obey in spite of any of the current dilemmas that we face. Look at verses 18 and 19. This is what the text says. 
This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. What a great story. What a great beginning. Matthew has little in the text that says anything about who Joseph and Mary are, but he establishes something that we can understand. There are these two young people, and they're going to get married. They're going to get married. Talk about an awesome, awesome time. Uh, The engagement, looking uh, to getting married. I can't think of a more exciting time. To prove it, I want to ask a question of one person out there. Nikki Haas, how many more days do you have until you're getting married? 19 days. It's an exciting time, isn't it, Nikki? TJ, can you say an amen to that? Amen. TJ's, TJ's Joseph. He's a quiet guy. Amanda and I have had the privilege of, uh, of uh, doing some, uh, we don't call it counseling. The state of Illinois won't allow me to do any counseling whatsoever. So we just call it sharing. We've been doing some sharing about uh, being married. And uh, uh, what a great time. I tell you what, we leave those uh, opportunities with them excited because they're excited. You'd be around a, 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 a fiancé, soon-to-be bride and groom. They're excited. There's fluttering in the hearts for the men. There's an established sense of joy in the women. And uh, that was a joke. You should have laughed. But, but it's a great time. But notice what happens. He doesn't stay there, Matthew. He says they're pledged to be married. This is an awesome time. But then there's that word we don't like, but. But what? Before they come together, she was found to be with child even though she hadn't been with her her, uh, soon-to-be husband. Now, to understand this idea of engagement, Jewish history says it would have lasted for one year. One year. They would have gotten together. Joseph would have gone to uh, Mary's father and uh, established some sort of dowry that would be given, a gift, a sum of money that would, that would prove a couple things. Number one, that Mary was worth something to Joseph. And number two, it would establish that Joseph had the wherewithal to provide for Mary. It's an Eastern, uh, especially a Middle Eastern tradition that continues uh, to this day. And what would happen is, is he would prove this uh, to the bride's family. And then he would go, and the the idea was is that he would go and begin to prepare the home for a soon-to-be wife. This is the connection that we see in John 14 when Jesus speaks about the disciples. And he says, I go to prepare a place for you. The idea here is what Jesus is saying is you're going to be my bride and we're engaged. And this engagement isn't just, well, we'll think about it and I put a ring on your finger, but it's a contract. And now my job is to go to my father's house and to begin to prepare a place for you. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Why? Because in my father's house, there are many rooms. The idea there was that the son would not go and find a subdivision to live in, but what he would do is he would add on to his father's home. And so what Jesus is saying, I'm going back to my father's home and I'm going to add some rooms so I can bring you to be with me. So you'll be with me forever. This is the Middle Eastern culture. Lord knows I tried to do that at my parents' house, but they said, get lost. (laughs) Thought we'd just build an extra part onto the house and and call it home, but they said no. And uh, we moved on. But this is the idea that's going on with this engagement. It lasts for about 12 months. And yet something happens that creates a dilemma. 
You know, it's easy to obey God at the beginning of that verse. I'm going to get married. Things are looking good. Going on our honeymoon. We've got exciting things that are going to take place. We're looking forward to the prospect of children and the prospect of living as husband and wife. I will tell you, when things are going good for us as believers, it's easy to obey God, isn't it? It's easy to obey God when the sky is blue, the birds are singing, and the sun is in the air. But what about in the dilemmas of life? When you lose your job, when money is low, when it seems that God is distant, when it seems like things are happening in your life that don't make sense, it becomes much more difficult to obey. Notice in verse 18, if we were to have a movie going on before us or some sort of theatrical rendition, if you will, of verse 18, I could imagine that what would take place is that there would be the birds would be singing, there would be this sense of great joy. Joseph and Mary are going to get married, but then things would grow dark. The music would get to a deeper tone and there would be darkness in the air, a heaviness, because Mary has something to share. She had gone and visited her cousin for three months. And that had kind of happened, it it seems, out of the blue. Joseph must have been worried at that time. It's one thing for you to ask for someone's hand in marriage and then for them to go on some long holiday soon after that takes place. I'm glad Amanda didn't do that because I'm afraid she may have come to her senses and never come back. But I wonder if that's what Joseph was thinking. Was she having cold feet? Was there maybe someone else that she had fallen in love with? Might that be the case? And so Mary comes back from Bethany. And what takes place? She's pregnant. Think about what would have been brought up in that conversation. One commentary shared on that thought. Adam Clark said this. He said, what conversation passed between Mary and Joseph on this discovery? We are not informed, but the issue proves that it was not satisfactory to Joseph. A couple weeks ago, uh, my uh, employees took me out for some lunch in, in Waterman. And at the restaurant we were at, they had they have a couple TVs in there, and uh, someone thought it'd be good to have the Maury Povich show on uh, television. And so we were watching, and it was the day of the paternal DNA tests. And I learned that this is something that Maury Povich kind of focuses in on these days. Business must be slow for him and Connie Chung. But uh, he, uh, he has these tests where there's this question about the pregnancy, and you, you notice that when it's time for Maury to open up the envelope and to say who's, father, who's the father of this child, there's a hush over the crowd and there seems to almost be, if you will, a drum roll in Hollywood fashion. There's this question. And there's two things that usually happen. Number one, when it comes out and it says, you're the father, there's great joy. There's great excitement. I don't know why, because if you're living that kind of life and wondering that, there shouldn't be much joy at all, but I guess it's a sense of relief that goes on in the hearts of both of the people. But then there's there's also, when it comes back, that you're not the father. There's this great uh, uh, noise that goes across the crowd. They take in this news, and then the husband and wife begin to fight and argue. I wonder if that was some of what was going on with Mary and Joseph. 
I know I would have wondered that. My fiance comes back from being on a journey. She comes back pregnant and she gives me the story about an angel coming and saying the Holy Spirit has conceived in her the long-awaited Messiah. Come on, I was born at night, but not last night. Come on, you, you, you shacked up with someone when you were on your way with, uh, uh, up to see Elizabeth, right? Come on, I, I know the days, I know the understanding of it. You did something wrong, just own up to it. At worst case scenario, maybe, maybe someone took advantage of you, Mary. Just, just call that out. That would be all right. It wasn't your fault and we'll deal with it. But that's not what she says. She says, that's none of it. She says, the Holy Spirit did this and it's something special. Boy, what was Joseph thinking? You know, dilemmas do a couple things to us, and I'm sure they did it with Joseph. First of all, they crush, uh, they crush our hopes, or they crumble our hopes. I'm sorry, they crumble our hopes. Joseph, it says that when he hears this, it says that he, uh, because he was a righteous man, he did not want to expose her. The idea here is he's, he's kind of lost hope in his relationship with Mary. Things start changing. They begin to kind of crumble. The whole thing that he had put together like a man usually does, we're going to do this, that, and the other thing, and it's all put together, and we've got our plans, and she comes back and she says he's, that she's pregnant, and I know I, there's been no hanky-panky at all, and, and, and what am I to do with this? And the life that he had all set up, the hopes that he had, begin to crumble. I will tell you that is where obedience will be its toughest because you begin to look at where your life is going and you have to make a decision. Either I'm going to try to fix it on my own or I'm going to follow God and his decree. But notice it goes farther than that because his heart is crushed. His heart is crushed. It says that he, uh, he goes, uh, hears about this uh, story. He does not want to expose her to public disgrace that he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now notice what would happen. He hears the story and he says, all right, we need to end the engagement. That's a given. Okay, what that's going to involve is a legal process with a judge and witnesses. It is going to mean that Joseph would stand before the, the rabbi or the chief priest and would accuse Mary of adultery. This wouldn't be hard to do because she would be showing by now in her third and fourth month. There would be signs of a pregnancy. She couldn't hide it. It would be easy for him to prove that. And what would happen then is there were two things. Number one, if it was a very traditional rabbi and one who held to a tradition understanding of the Torah, she would be stoned. She'd be taken out into the street and she would be stoned. Not much different than what we see, I believe, in John chapter 8 with a woman caught in adultery. That's what would have happened to Mary. If it was a, a more liberal uh, or gracious, maybe is a, a better term, judge, what would happen is she would be confined to her father's home uh, and she would live a life of abject poverty because there would be no one to provide for her. So she would be fine until mom and dad died, and then she would be placed either um, in some sort of a group-type arrangement with a brother or sister, um, but she would be a, a place of dishonor. This is what would happen. It would eventually end up that she would find herself completely separated from her husband. And yet notice what's going on, because the text tells us something about Joseph. The text tells us that he was a righteous man, 
Another translation says he was a just man. And even though he hasn't obeyed yet, what he's trying to do right now is he's trying to make a decision about a tough circumstance, but he's doing it with his own thinking. He's doing it with only what is in his head and in his heart. Let me tell you something. Yesterday's Bible stories and yesterday's obedience will not answer today's problems. You run into a problem today, don't think you can rely on something you learned 20 years ago. Joseph shows us that because he's trying to make the best decision. What does he do? He says, I'll divorce her quietly. What that would mean is there would be no legal um, involvement with the courts. There would be no accusation. What would happen is, is he would divorce her quietly and she would go into probably either some other person's home, another family member's home. Most likely commentaries say that she would have gone back to Elizabeth's house where she could have gone and been uh, kind of a nobody. Nobody would have known her story. We didn't have internet and Facebook back in those days. So she would have been able to go under the guise of being a woman who maybe lost her husband due to an illness or a sickness, kind of like Ruth and uh, uh, Orpah in the story of Ruth, of course. That could have been the case. But what Joseph says is, hey, just, just I'm done. I'm out of here. And that would seem like a bold and noble thing. Not that he didn't have to do that, and yet he does. And yet we learn that his obedience wasn't good enough because he was relying on himself. Even though it was noble, it wasn't as far as God wanted it to go. So there's a second lesson we learned this morning. That is we must obey, even if it means a change in direction. Look at verses 20 and 21. But after he considered this, this idea, this phrase here that is given is this idea of long deliberation. This wasn't something that just Joseph did out of anger. He didn't say, all right, I'm out of here. You know, good riddance, woman. You blew it. I don't ever want to see you again. There's this sense of deep love and affection towards his fiancée. It seems that he was a, a righteous man, as the scripture says, literally to be innocent, holy, and fair. Joseph must have recognized that there were some skeletons in his closet. Maybe he recognized that uh, she had made a mistake and, 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 and a young girl like that shouldn't have to make or pay a lifetime or even give up her life for a sin that she was a part of. We don't know why Joseph makes this decision, but it seems to be out of the righteousness that he had. And yet there's a change in action. It wasn't good enough just to prove it out of his righteousness but it involved some other things. Notice what his change of direction involved. It involved an angelic word. An angelic word, of course, we know the story. Joseph is, uh, is uh, sleeping, he's dreaming, and an angel appears in his dream. And the angel declares this, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The angel comes and the angel articulates truth. Joseph is trying to work with his own thinking, his own wisdom, his own understanding, and he's falling short. And God says, that's not good enough. I'm going to send an angel. And there's two things I want you to know about what the angel does. Number one, the angel comes and his word settles Joseph's direction. Write that in your outline. The angel comes and he settles Joseph's direction. What does he say? He says, turn around. Don't go the way you're going. Don't divorce this woman. Take Mary as your wife. 
Take her as your wife. Stop heading that direction towards divorce and take her as his wife. The next thing we see is that he, he settles Joseph's doubt. Look at what he says. He explains what's going on. Take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. What a message. Joseph is panicking. What are my friends going to say? What are my parents going to say? I have this fiance who has now cheated on me. He lays his head down to sleep and the angel comes before him and says, hey, change your directions and I'm going to give you an understanding why. Don't doubt Mary. She's being truthful. And secondly, what's going on is something incredible in the life of of not just you and Mary, but it will be something that will be so wonderful and so great that it will involve the whole world. Now you say, wow, that's pretty amazing to hear from an angel. But understand this, he heard an angel through a dream. That's not so airtight. How many of you have had dreams that have just seemed like, wow, I, I, I can really understand that, that the dream's telling me to do something. That's, a, that's something I need to go with. I, I'll tell you, that's hard for me to think that if, uh, if I had been in, in uh, Joseph's situation, that a dream would have solidified for me. It must have been some pretty amazing dream, but the text doesn't say anything about it. It just says a dream. An angel appeared in a dream. Matthew doesn't go into great detail about it, and he gives us this idea that it was probably a run-of-the-mill dream, but it was one that gripped Joseph's heart. And he makes a life decision based on an angelic word. The next thing we see is that there had to have also been a part of the ancient word that was involved. Notice what the text says. All of this in verse 22 took place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet. The virgin will be, called, will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The idea that Matthew declares this, this is Matthew speaking, not the angel Gabriel. The reason why Matthew shares this is that there is a real understanding and belief by scholars that during that time, when Joseph and Mary were living in and near Jerusalem, there was the thought that there was a clamor that was going on that Messiah was coming. Look around you. It's ready. As the prophets declared, Messiah was coming. There were signs that were taking place. There seemed to be this effect, this clamoring that God had been silent for 400 years and now he was going to declare to his people that the Messiah had come. And so people were ready for it. There is no doubt an excitement that was being built up by the Jewish people. And we know that because there seems to be more and more from history declared about Herod who was ruling over that time that he grew more and more fearful that the one that was going to be born would be the one that would take his throne. And we see things in secular history by secular historians that give us this idea that the Jewish people in Mary and Joseph's day were ready for Messiah to come. And so Joseph hears this dream and the dream is confirmed by what the prophets say. Isaiah 7.14 is what Matthew declares that the virgin uh, would be with child and would give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. What did Mary say? Mary said that she was, had something conceived in her. This baby was conceived in her by the Holy Spirit. That sounds like Isaiah. 
Now, Joseph would have known Mary pretty well. He wouldn't have just married anybody. He would have known her and he would have said, she is a righteous woman. She is a humble woman. She's never lied to me before. And what she's articulating is all that I hear that's a buzz in the area of Judea. And there seems to be this idea that the angelic word being confirmed by the prophet's word, the ancient word, brings an understanding. This is important for us to understand when it comes to God's will for our lives. Because you would say, hey, I'll obey God. This is where we play Monday morning quarterback. I'd obey God if Gabriel showed up at my house. I would choose the right school to go to. If an angel came and told me to go to Augustana or to go to uh, this school or that school, that would be easy to do. But I don't have an angel coming and sharing with me. I've got to do it the hard way. And yet we know, the the book of Hebrews says that uh, God spoke to our forefathers in many different ways, in various ways, but now he speaks to us through his son. How are we to understand God's will through his son? Can God still speak through dreams? I believe he can. Can God still uh, speak through angels? I believe, yes, he's, he's more than capable of doing that. He did it back in the day. I still believe he can do it today. Is it all that common? I don't think so. Is it uh, something that uh, we see uh, each and every day? Probably not, but I, I, I could say that I could see that happening. I'll give you a reason why. When I was uh, contemplating uh, accepting even the call to, to preach on an ongoing basis, an elderly man in our church called me one day um, and he said, I had a dream and he says, I don't want you to think I'm Pentecostal because I'm not. I'm not Pentecostal, Tim. And I said, okay, I, I recognize that. And he says, you say it again. I'm not Pentecostal. You're not Pentecostal. Okay. But I had this dream, and the dream was that, that the Lord impressed upon me, you need uh, to preach. And I said, okay, all right. And, I, and, and he said, I don't know what to say of this, but, um, but the Lord said it would be confirmed in the next couple weeks. And I said, I don't know. I said, you're a, you're a godly man. There's no reason for me to doubt it. And he started to cry. You don't believe me. And he yells to his wife, he doesn't believe me. What am I to do with this? And, uh, and I got off the phone and Amanda says, what's going on? And I said, well, so-and-so had a dream. And, uh, and what they're saying is this, you need to, you need to pursue this thing. You need to allow it to, to go to full measure. And I said, I don't know. I don't think so. And exactly what he said about the confirmation took place two weeks later. And I sat there and said, this is of the Lord. It's of the Lord. Could I be wrong? I absolutely could be wrong. And that's what you have to do with dreams. You have to test them, test them, test them all the time. But you know what else I learned? As I was going through the scriptures, the Lord confirmed it time and time again. You have a question about God's will? You have a question about how you should obey? A dream may come or someone may come and share a word with you and you'd be like, wow, that, how did they know that? Is that the Lord? Is that the Lord speaking? Confirm it in God's word. Always use the scriptures to confirm it. John Piper, uh, the pastor from Minneapolis, was told by a woman who came up to him when his wife was expecting their first child. She came up and she had heard a word from the Lord. And she said, Pastor John, your wife is going to lose that child in the first three months. He says, what am I supposed to do with that? And he said, the Lord told me that, she said. 
He says, why would the Lord tell me that? What, what good is that? What is that for me? And he talks in great detail in one of his messages how he went to the Word and he was able to confirm in his heart that that was not from the Lord. That was a woman who was trying to show off and the devil used her words in brutal ways. And that child now is, I believe, 30-some years of age. Be careful when it comes to dreams, when it comes to what we would call extraordinary things that God uses extraordinary means Test it. The Bible says test the spirits. Don't just obey every spirit that comes. Don't obey every word that comes. We have a lot of people that obey a feeling that they have, and it was pepperoni pizza that they ate the night before. Be careful with that. Believe what the Word of God says, because I believe that is what Joseph did. Now notice the third thing that we see this morning. We see that we must obey by being committed to making the the right and godly decisions. We need to make godly decisions. We have to obey. You know, obedience isn't just used in our mouth. It isn't just when things are going well or if some good thing is placed before us. Understand this. It can, the dumbest animal in the world will obey you if you've got a treat in your hand. Are you that type of Christian this morning? See, we've got this, this doctrine in America called the doctrine of uh, prosperity that says if you obey God, if you exhibit faith, all will be well with you. And really what it is, is it's a, it's a, it's a doctrine that says you are the dumbest animal in the world and that you're going to do whatever you need to do to be obedient because there's a treat at the end uh, of whatever God has called you to. That's from the pit and it smells like smoke. It's It's nonsense. It's nonsense. When God calls you to something, obedience may mean that you get nothing, that you get nothing, that God wants to use you, uh, in essence, in some ways, very disposable, like a very disposable cup, that you have a purpose. And you know what? If you can't find joy that God would use you an earthen vessel, and if he desired to throw you away, even though that's not what we see, but if he desired that, that you would say, Lord, thank you for using me. Martin Luther did a whole message about being a privy pot. Privy pot is an old name for a bad instrument that you had in your bedroom uh, when there wasn't indoor plumbing. I'll leave it at that. And what Martin Luther uh, preached on, he says, I want to be the best privy pot for God that I can be. Do you obey like that? Or do you obey with the thought that if I make godly decisions, then God will bless me. And if I do this, it equals that. If I obey my parents, then it means I'll get this allowance. If I uh, stay true to my wife, then it means that God will give me a new car. That is junk and stop believing that. You obey God because God told you to. You obey God because if you don't, there is a fiery expectation of judgment when we don't. A man reaps what he sows. You want to sow to the flesh, you're going to reap to it. You want to sow to the Spirit, you'll you'll reap some wonderful benefits that will come. But it won't mean a new car in your parking or your garage. It won't mean a, a raise. It may mean none of that. So what do we do? Notice what it says. It says, when he woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife. It says, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. That kind of knocks uh, uh, the Catholic belief of Mary's perpetual virginity. It says there was no union until. That usually means that, that it happens after a certain period of time until she gave birth to a son. And he gave her the name Jesus. Just a quick commentary. It's extra credit and free. I think it's kind of cool in Luke. It says that Mary gave Jesus the name. 
Jesus. And here it says that uh, Joseph gave the name to Jesus to be Jesus. I wonder if that was their first holy family argument that went on. No, I'm the one that names it. No, you're the one that names it. Again, that's free. So I know you enjoyed it. (laughs) Two things. What does our commitment involve? Let me close with these two things. Number one, it involves a response to God's commands. What is God calling to you, you to this morning? It's probably, I, I would hope not, anything that Joseph is dealing with. But maybe God's commanding you to do some things this morning. Maybe God's been calling you to some things for a long time and you haven't been listening. Maybe you find yourself uh, trying to uh, pursue a right understanding through the stuff that you had as a Christian long ago, meaning the, the old knowledge, the old truth that you had, and you're trying to make a way for it, and it seems not to be working. The text says that Joseph got up. He doesn't say anything. What a wonderful reminder for us when it comes to obedience. My son doesn't understand that right now, and I'm afraid I got two more. They're going to be the same way. I tell my son to do something, and he wants to have a conversation about it. Obedience. Obedience doesn't involve a conversation. I say jump, my son should say, how high? That's it. Sadly, he learned from his own father because I didn't listen to my dad. And yet obedience is a response to God's commands. He did it. He did exactly what the Lord had commanded him. He took Mary home and he made made her his wife. The second thing we see is that our response, our commitment to making godly decisions is going to have an impact on other people. And that is it's going to involve our regard for other people. I want you to understand something that I never have seen in the text before until I studied it this week. And that was two things. Number one, write this down. When it came to his relationship with Mary, he did two things. Number one, he associated with Mary and he accepted Mary. He associated with her because he took Mary home. What that would mean is that he would be the laughingstock to his friends. He would take a woman into his home who had a child that was not his. Think about that. His friends would have known that. His friends would have understood that. His family would have understood that. And yet that's what Joseph does. He takes Mary to be home with him and he says, I will associate with you. But he does more than that because he accepts Mary. He makes her his wife. Why does he do that? Why does he show such regard for Mary? It isn't because she deserved it. It isn't because she had, in essence, proved herself. She couldn't. There was no way Mary could prove what had happened as a result of this conception. But the reason why Joseph showed grace and mercy to a fellow human being was because God told him to. And so when we obey... Make sure that our obedience isn't just following God's commands, but it equally involves how we are treating one another and how we are living out that life of obedience with the people around us. Some of us think that we live a life of obedience uh, despite all the people around us, all the unbelievers around us, and yet Mary is shown grace and mercy because God told Joseph to do that. He says, I want you to show her grace and mercy. I want you to accept her. I want you to love her. Let me tell you something. And I want to close with this thought, and it's going to be one minute and we'll be in prayer. And that is this. And it's just a reminder for us. There's been a lot of talk about uh, politics that have been going on since the election. 
And I want us to be very careful. I was uh, out and I uh, was with a couple of Christian individuals uh, who I would think are mature Christian uh, human beings. And uh, we got into the discussion of politics. And I love politics, by the way. I think it's awesome. Uh, all the inner workings of the two parties and all that. I, I love it. It's great. And I have my own thoughts on politics, which I won't get into here. But let me tell you this. What went from being a healthy political discussion turned into an all-out racist diatribe against our new president. And whether you agree with him or not, God says we show grace to all men. We show love to all men. And whether you like somebody or don't, we've done this with uh, people in the world time and time again. And they wonder, we wonder why the world doesn't like us. Because I'll tell you, quite frankly, we can be pit bulls when it comes to uh, lack of love to the people in this world. You want to obey God? You want to show and prove your obedience to the world around you? You start showing grace to the people that God brings before you. You show love. You don't fall prey to the nonsense garbage of of getting uh, into jokes and getting into nonsense of talking behind people's back. You say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and let me prove it by how I treat others. The scripture says in closing, they will know that we are Christians by our love. You want to prove your obedience? Don't do it in word, but do it in deed. That's what Joseph did. He did what was commanded of him. And because of that, he's no average Joe. But he is one of greatness that we should remember and we should model our lives after. Father God, we come before you. Lord, there's much work to be done in our lives when it comes to this issue of obedience. Lord, we like sheep all go astray, each to our own way. And yet you came. And we celebrate that coming uh, this Christmas. And Lord, I pray that we would truly understand that we must be a people who are obedient. Father, that we won't do it because there's some rosy end for us, but like the great fathers and mothers of the faith who went before us, that great cloud of witnesses in the book of Hebrews, it says they did things knowing that they had uh, no knowledge of what would come. And in fact, they had people come and take their children away from them, the text says. They were sawed in two. They didn't have a place to live. And yet they were faithful. In essence, Lord, they obeyed. Lord, let us be a Hebrews 11 type of people that we would obey no matter the circumstances, that we would obey no matter what our bank account says, no matter what our job status is, that we would obey knowing that you have a plan and you have a work that is going to take place in our lives. And Lord, that when the tough times come and the questions are unanswered, that we would do nothing more than just obey. Lord, it is there that we will do your will. It is there that you're able uh, to move in our lives and allow us to be a blessing even in times of our own greatest trials. Lord, we are told that in our trials and in our circumstances that are dilemmas before us, that you bring them so that we will go through them so that we will learn your comfort and then in turn be a comfort to others. Lord, that is what transpired in Joseph's life. And we thank you for that model, that he showed love and compassion to a woman that in his opinion should have never been shown love and compassion, but he did it because you had told him to do it. 
Lord, during this season of Christmas where it seems everybody is friendly, everybody is loving, let us be beyond that and let them not see holiday cheer in the good things that we do, but that they would see obedient followers of Jesus Christ so that in there, there would be a message that would be proclaimed. And that is that Jesus Christ came into this world to save people from their sins. And as Paul said, uh, just like me being the chief of sinners and that we would display the grace and mercy that comes from Christ and him alone. To you be the glory, honor, and praise for all that's been said and done. In Jesus' name, amen.